Welcome back to Basecamp and to our study through systematic theology. Again, one of the main reasons why we want to begin studying the topics in this course that we're walking through, and, and even doing this right now as a local church, is because we want to we want to be a local church that is built upon a solid foundation, right? We we want to be a, a church that is built upon the truths of the Bible discovering who God is and how he operates within redemptive history by seeing how the big overarching storyline puts on display God's glory. And so spending time studying the things that we're studying, the, the things of God, they help us to see things rightly, to see the world around us rightly, to see all of human history rightly, to see God rightly, and, and to worship him <laughs> for who he really is. Right, because it's as we get a tight grasp on who God is from the pages of the Bible, we're, we're able to submit to Him, right, for for who He is, and not 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 create a God after our own image. Right, what we've said is a, a softer, fluffier version of ourselves. Not only that, but but we are, as I mentioned, able to really worship Him for who He is, and not who we think He is by our ignorance of His Word. Thus, as a local church, we, we want to have deep roots and to be tethered to the Word of God so that as the winds and waves of this world rise all around us, we, we want to be tethered to a safe harbor in the midst of every storm. Not only that, but, but we won't be able to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine because we will test everything according to God's Word. Thus we will grow in our knowledge of God and grow to be men and women who can say that they genuinely know God. And as we talked to even this, this past week on the motif of kingship at our, at our gathering, and, and we saw how Jesus fulfills that perfect king role, we also saw how, how we are able to, now, with God the Spirit's assistance, that we're able to live as God's people under God's king, awaiting God's land. All right, and, and as we do so, we can grow in the holy and right fear of God so we don't fall back into the fear of man, right? As we remember that entire base camp series. But back to the task at hand, systematic theology. So we've started to understand the importance of the Bible and seeing some of the attributes of God. Now in our study, we turn to the few, first few lines of the Bible. And the first thing we're introduced to is that God is the God who creates. So let's dive in. So the scriptures begin, and they say this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so let's, let's reflect on these words as we're getting started, talking about the God who creates, line by line, for just a moment. And the first thing I want us to see is that it is God who created. right? So, so creation owes itself not to just chance or impersonal forces, but rather to a sovereign and holy and powerfully creative God. We also see that God created in the beginning. So, so we have a time marker established right there from the very beginning. Thus, this time, as we know it, was created by God. Thus, he is pre-existent, eternal, before time. Right? He, he created it, so he's, he's before it. No, we also read that God created the heavens and the earth. So, so all, all we see, just in these, in these very few verses, just in case there's any confusion, is that everything that exists owes itself to God. And though it might not be immediate obvious to you, uh, there's an enormous amount of theology that is contained right here in this first sentence. 
See, that the, the Bible begins with creation establishes the reality that God is uncreated and everything owes its beginning to God. Thus, it, it is not some random mutation, right, that, that creates everything, but, but rather a sovereign God who establishes the world. And this first chapter of Genesis is astounding and it's it's beautiful, it's breathtaking, as it as it ex- explains a great deal about who we are as humans and, and what we were created to be and to do and, and how we began in relation to God and the world around us. And not only that, but, but doesn't it teach us the way that God created everything as good and perfect and unstained? And as we talked even about this in our, in our sermon a few weeks ago, a, a solid understanding of creation is vital to us understanding the big picture of God. For in the beginning of the Bible and in the ending, we, we see something of how, of how God will redeem and restore creation. Thus, as we know, the, the storyline goes, creation, fall, redemption, new heavens, new earth, as it's purified. Right? Thus, these, these opening chapters and, and the ending chapters of the Bible, they all point us to this everlasting hope as Christians. It's hugely important, especially in today's skeptical age. But if you've been around Christianity really for any length of time, you, you also know that these first few chapters of the Bible has sparked a lot of debate among Christians. <laughs> Maybe you've seen that on Facebook. Uh, right? As, as debates have arisen around right, how Genesis chapter 1 and 2 should be read. I mean, is it merely mythical or poetic or scientific? I mean, we know it's not a scientific textbook, right? We know the Bible isn't a scientific textbook that's meant to give us every jot and tittle of information that we might have ever wanted to know. No, we, we remember the Bible is sufficient for all that we need to know, but not all of our questions are answered as we come to the Bible. Everything that we might want to know isn't within the pages. Thus, the Bible doesn't give us this cause and effect explanation like your grade 10 biology book. That, as if we're merely just in the natural world governed by impersonal forces. But we also know that this account is not merely poetry. And we also recognize that these opening lines are part of a sermon to God's people, explaining to them who God is and how powerful and creative he is, and how he made everything as good and good and good and very good, right? And, and what he created us to be about in our everyday lives. And so as Moses is led by the Spirit to write these opening chapters, he uses symbolism, just like we have in the book of Revelation, Yet he also speaks very plainly and concretely. So you can see why Christians have had various viewpoints on this part of Scripture that try to remain faithful while also striving to comprehend and synthesize what we know from other texts of the Bible and creation around us. But, but like I said, the main point of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is, is to give us a theology of creation. Moses is, after all, after the hearts of his hearers. He's not, he's not trying to write a science textbook. No, he's going for their hearts. He wants to teach them about who God is. Thus, the focus is theological, with a special focus upon God's relationship with humanity. And remember, too, that it was written after Israel has been led out of captivity in Egypt. Thus, it is written to a ransomed people about who their God is and what he is like. And we know that God wants his people to to shed itself of the polytheism and paganism of Egypt. Therefore, we are to see glaring at us the wonderful news that Yahweh is the covenant Lord. Now, if, 
If you were to tell someone on the street, or maybe a family member or a friend, at Christmas gathering in that couple of days, right, that it was God who created the heavens and the earth, what kind of discussions might ensue? Or, or imagine if you posted something on Facebook about God being the only true and living God, the one who created everything that exists. What, what kind of conversations might ensue in the comment section on that post? Well, if your social media friends are anything like mine, you would probably be bombarded by a barrage of questions. Right? Like your new age friend, they, they might ask, well, what about dinosaurs? And what role did Mother Earth play in this creation? <laughs> no joke, that's happened to me. Uh, and, and maybe your PhD scientist friend might ask, well, what about the age of the Earth and carbon-14 dating and the fossil record and evolution? And many other kind of conversations like this might arise. And this is often how these conversations around creation often go. Right? They're kind of co-opted by various rabbit trails. And this has probably happened to you. In fact, I, I remember a few years ago, I was sitting in a Starbucks, and someone struck up a conversation with me and said, oh, you're, you're reading a Bible, huh? So, so you're a Christian? Oh, I, I couldn't believe that stuff because of evolution. You, you, know, you guys have it all wrong. In fact, that's the only thing keeping me from becoming a Christian. It's just so oblivious to the science. And they said it kind of in a rather smug way, <laughs> as if I was quite dumb. To which I replied... Oh, man, that's your only problem standing in your way? Man, my big problem was that God, the eternal God who created everything, stepped into time, laying humanity alongside of divinity and lived a perfect life in our place, and then stood condemned as our substitute, suffering and dying the death I deserve to die. And then he died and he rose from the dead three days later to offer us forgiveness of sins. That's not based on what we do, but purely based on faith on what he has done. I said, man, if your only problem is evolution, you're doing way better than I was before I ever became a Christian. <laughs> and, and upon hearing that, he, he politely stood up and said goodbye and walked away, leading me to suspect that his real problem was not evolution, but rather the creator that he had a problem with. The fact that if there is a creator, it means that this man has sinned against this creator and, and he is guilty of being a sinner at its core. See, and friends, that's the core heart of this whole discussion. Because if there is a God who created everything, and, and, and everything is created by him, he gets to make the rules and receive the glory and gets to decide what is right and what is wrong in his own eyes and just tell us what is right and is wrong. And it's only he who gets to be worshipped. And if people can take God out of the equation in creation, they get to decide that they can decide who the creator is. And and if all everything is just pistons firing in brains, then it makes no sense or makes no point if I do something right or wrong. The, the, the question of ethics gets purely sidelined. So, so we don't want to get sidetracked by smokescreen of rabbit trails when people want to talk about various creation things. Instead, instead, we want to always look for the heart of the conversation. That's what we want to go back to. We want to let God's voice ring true in a gracious response with others as we call them to faith and obedience in Christ. So, that might sound nice, but you still might be wondering, what, what, what does God have to say about creation? He's the God who creates, but tell me about it. And so, we, we want to consider seven specific statements from the Bible related to the opening chapter of Genesis. 
then kind of with that foundation, we're going to talk about the age of the earth and a couple of other matters in this episode. So let's dive into those seven biblical truths about creation. And the first is this, God created the universe out of nothing. In fact, Nino did a great job talking about this in his sermon a couple of weeks ago. God created the universe ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. In the beginning, God created. Notice as well that the word does not say when God began to create. And that's important because it's not like God somehow stumbled across some cosmic Play-Doh somewhere and just refashioned and shaped everything that already was. No, he merely spoke and all things came into existence out of nothing. Listen to what the word of God has to say about creating the universe out of nothing. Hebrews 11 Verse 3. It's a great passage. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Or Romans 4.17 says that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Psalm 33.6-9 says the heavens were made by the word of God, by the breath of his mouth. So also regarding the earth and its inhabitants, he spoke and commanded, and it was done. And because God created the entire universe out of nothing, there is no matter in the universe that is eternal. All that we see came into existence when God created it. There was a time when matter itself did not exist. It it did not matter. (laughs) That's a small dad joke for you. Um, But but look look at me at Psalm 90, verse 2. For example, it says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So first truth, God created the world out of nothing. And now secondly, God created all things, both visible and invisible, both in heavens and the earth. And this is clearly asserted in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, but not just here. Listen to the universal statement in John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, Through him, talking about Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was or that has been made. Which is beautiful because this is the first time where we see a bit more behind the curtain that it was through Jesus, the agent of creation, that everything created came into creation. We're going to talk about this in a second, but it is worth noting. It's beautiful to see. God the Father planned and ordained creation, but John tells us it was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who actually created. And Hebrews 1-2 tells us the exact same thing. It says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, we're, we're going to talk about the Trinitarian creation in a moment, but I just wanted to add that into this little point right here because I think it's kind of important, but we'll talk about it. It will have its own point in a moment. But but I want us to see this point. Uh, point number two, God created all things, visible and invisible, in the heavens and the earth. It's, it's important here to see that all things were created by the triune God of the Bible. John tells us in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, that God created all things. Why? for his will. This is what he says. He says, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Also, Acts chapter 4 verse 24 speaks of God as the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Thus, the inclusion of heaven and earth and everything in them indicates that God created the entire universe. We could keep on going, but you get the point. God created everything that exists. He is the only uncreated one. Everything else is creation, and he is creator. 
And, and the creation of the entire universe includes the creation of an unseen spiritual realm of existence. Right? In addition to creating the visible, tangible, physical universe, God created the angels and other kinds of heavenly beings. And in his letter to the Colossians, Paul specifies that in Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Colossians 1.16. And so here, the creation of invisible heavenly beings is also explicitly affirmed. So God is a creator of all things, physical as well as spiritual. Nothing is his equal, which is really important because it's not a yin-yang thing. We don't have light needs darkness. No, God, pure light, pure light is one who creates everything. So there was an eternity past from before he created those things that are invisible, the spiritual realm, like things like angels, for example, there was a time that none of that existed. It was just him. Thus, we don't have this necessity of light and darkness in our world. No, in fact, in the end, there will only be light. Right? We won't even have the moon. There will be no darkness, which is symbolic of that. There's no, there's no darkness at all because it's only light. Thus, God is the creator of all things, physical as well as the spiritual. All right, now, thirdly, God created time. Now, physics would tell us that time is a property resulting from the existence of matter. So there's this succession of moments, one after another, which is dependent on the existence or a material substance. I know it's been a long time since you've been in physics class. Me too. Uh, but, but accordingly, time exists when matter exists. But God is not matter. No, God, in fact, created matter. So before that, God was simply existing in eternity past. And since there was no matter before he created, and because God does not change, time had no existence, and therefore no meaning and no relation to him. This is why he can say in the verse 1, in the beginning. It's because he created the beginning. <laughs> so, so what does this mean? That might have been a little heady for you there for a moment. But what does this mean? Well, it means that God is not bound by time like you and I. God's existence is independent of it, right? In the way that maybe you can just look at your phone and you see all of your phone. God looks at everything he's created and it's just there. It, all of time is just there. Like you're looking at your phone. He, he is not he is not uh, bound up into it the way that you're not bound up into your phone. God's existence is independent of time, just as yours is, I know this is hard to believe, independent of your phone. And not only did he create reality in which he, we all live, not only did he create you and me, he actually created the space-time continuum that we exist in, which is a, quite an amazing thing. I mean, that's a pretty cool invention. Uh, recall Psalm 90, verse 2. And this is what it says. It says, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or recall Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, which reads, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Or how about Psalm 102? Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. These verses all show and demonstrate to us God is eternal. And in contrast, it also shows that the universe is not eternal. The universe had a beginning. It is temporal. And this strikes a huge blow to our Darwinian friends who look for a time-space answer to the problems of beginnings. God has no beginning. And so has not time-space limitations like we, like we do. 
They are, in a very real sense, looking in the wrong place. So God not only created the universe, he created the time-space continuum that the universe is found in. And fourthly, God created by his word. Now think, think about that. What's one of the most common refrains when you're reading Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2? Right? In all these things that God created, what's, what's the common refrain? It's, and God said. Right? I mean, ten times we see that. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. The point is unmistakable. God calls all things into existence by speaking them into existence through his word. He literally speaks the universe into existence by his word and created something where there was nothing. God just speaks and bam, it's done. God's word, as we know, is also necessary for salvation. We learned that in the very first episode of this series. But it's also the means to life, as we know. And so we see that God's word brings life both spiritually and physically. Hebrews 11.3 states that by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, consider for a moment the power of God's word. The picture is not of God sweating, toiling, laboring for years, if not millennia, to create. Right? He, he merely speaks in itself. I mean, it, it took months to repave a strip of highway in the summertime that I drive on often. It was terrible. But in a nanosecond, God speaks galaxies into existence. <laughs> That's the unbridled power of God when God chooses to speak. And so we are completely unlike him. I mean, think about it. We speak in our world words trail right off into the air. I mean, how many mornings have my kids uh, walk down the stairs and I'd say something to them? They don't even hear me. Don't even hear me. Or, or I say something and nothing happens. Nothing changes. How, how often do my wife's words pass right through my ears? I, I might not hear her. There's not any change. But, but it's not so with God. His word is effectual. It creates. The world doesn't just turn at God's command. The world literally hangs on God's word. So what we have, right, the picture is not one of trial and error, right? like some kind of crazed inventor just scratching his head, not knowing exactly what to do. No, God's word is powerful. It creates, and it's perfect. It creates exactly what he intended them to create. So God created everything by his word. Fifthly, creation is a triune act. I told you, this is going to get its own point. Uh, and we picked this up a moment ago, but, but I want to elucidate it a little bit further. Now, as we know, Genesis chapter 1 gives these indicators in the vocabulary, right? There's the spirit hovering over the waters, and then we get to Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? That, that the creator God is triune. So we, we see this, this kind of, uh, this kingly language, this we and us language. And, and as we know, God the Father plans all things and ordains all things, and they all unfold for his glory. Right? We see texts like Psalm 19.1 that explains the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we also know that God the Son is the agent of creation, the person of the Godhead who enacted the Father's plans and purposes and created accordingly. Now, we, we don't learn this right away in the Bible, but this is revealed progressively. We get this in John 1.3, for example, speaking about Jesus. This is what it says. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1, 16 to 18a, speaking of Jesus, says this. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for 
him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So, so, so we have this the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Spirit. The Father plans and ordains all things. The Son accomplishes what the Father's plan. But, but you might be wondering, well, what about God the Spirit? What role did he play in creation? Well, God the Spirit is generally pictured as completing, filling, and giving life to God's creation. That's that Spirit hovering over the waters. In Genesis 1, that's where the, it hints at that. This, this um, preserving and sustaining function of the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. But we also see that in other places, like Job 33, verse 4. Right? The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Or Psalm 104, 30. The psalmist writes concerning the great variety of creatures on the earth and in the sea, saying, When you send forth your Spirit, they are created. And then in John 6, we see that it is the Spirit that indwells a person upon regeneration, giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Jesus says in verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of Spirit and life. So the rhythm that we have here in Scripture is, is in creation, is that the Father plans and ordains creation. The Son creates. The Spirit gives life to all the Son has made for the glory of God the Father. And what's beautiful is this is the exact same pattern, right, that we see in salvation, right? Who has planned and ordained and foreordained our salvation? God the Father. But who accomplishes it? Well, God the Son, Jesus, right? He leaves humanity alongside divinity, steps in time, right? And, and then what about God the Spirit? Well, he gives life and faith so that we place our trust upon Jesus for the glory of God the Father. So, so creation is a Trinitarian act that reveals the Godhead in the exact same way that our salvation, dear brother and sister, does the exact same thing. So, uh, next point. Uh, sixthly, uh, the universe that God created was very good. And just, just think about that. Isn't that the constant refrain of Genesis chapter 1? I mean, God saw all that he, he made, all that he did, and it was good, right? We see that in Genesis 1, verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25, right? It's good, 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 very good, right? So at the end of those six days, God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis 1, 31. God delighted in the creation he had made, just as he had purposed to do so. See, see, though sin has marred this material world now, after the fall, even to the point that creation groans, right? Romans 8.22. The material world was created as very good. And it longs to be redeemed just as we do. It groans to be redeemed like we do. But in all of this, not all the goodness of creation is completely gone forever, right? No, in the same way that we reflect God as broken humans, the earth itself is still under the authority of God, and as its author, he has given it a wondrous purpose as it awaits redemption. And this is its purpose. It points all of us in general revelation that there is a God, and it blows us away with amazing sunsets, beautiful waterfalls, magnificent mountains. Or as one author put it, whereas God could have created air filtration machines, he instead chose to create trees. Whereas God could have chosen a cast creation right, in, in all just black and white, he instead chose to paint from a vast palette of colors. So we have all these beautiful colors all around us. Not only that, but we have taste buds. You thought about that? What purpose are taste buds? <laughs> There's purely for pleasure. But he also gives water and wine. 
And he gives bread and cheese, breathtaking sunsets and harvest moons, coffee and chocolate. Right? God, God's not stingy. He's not some Scrooge. He's not tight-fisted. And through creation itself, he teaches us that he's a wonderfully good God who's open-handed with his people. His good gifts are for our gratification so that we might give praise and thanks to God. That's, that's the entire logic of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Which then brings us to our last point, point seven. God created the universe to show his glory. Now, we, we've been talking about this a lot in our current sermon series, In the Theater of God's Glory, but it bears repeating as we study this topic into the future. See, God has intricately woven all of human history together to display his glory knowing that God does all things for his glory, right? We read about that in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, Isaiah 43, 6 to 7, uh, Isaiah 49, 3, Psalm 106, 7 to 8, Romans 9, 17, Exodus 14, 4, and verse 18, Ezekiel 20, verse 14. I mean, on and on and on. We could go needless to say, God does all things for his glory, we're told in the pages of the Bible. Thus, mankind and the universe were created for the glory of God. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. In the song of the living creatures, Revelation chapter 4, shows that God's creation is to give praise and glory to its creator. I mean, the creatures sing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. <laughs> See, we are designed, even created, to glorify God as his creation. That's why God can say in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. For he designed it all so that he could bring glory to his name. But it's important to understand that God did not need to create to bring him glory. He, he didn't need to. He, he is by himself already infinitely glorious. God, God desired to create the universe to demonstrate its excellence, but he didn't need to. He, he created it to take delight in his creation and creating powers, but he didn't need to. He, he created the universe to show off his glory and to receive glory. So, 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 so it's this beautiful thing. It doesn't need it. It just creates out of fullness of who he is. He creates all things that exist for his own glory. So, so now that we've talked about all those seven important things, I, I, I do want to chat uh, for, for the remainder of this, this podcast uh, about some various views that Christians have of creation. Now, as we do so, it's important to note that these six views are all legitimate Christian readings of the Bible, there's not one of them that gets the ability to just discredit the others purely from the Bible. And so while we may disagree with some of these views and think they aren't as good of an explanation as other views, we want to have a lot of Christian charity here. Right? We do want to be really careful to let our focus be on what binds all of these views together. And so we want to remember, what do all these views have in common? Well, three big things. Firstly, that God is the creator of all things. Secondly, that God created everything as good. And thirdly, God made mankind, human beings, wholly different than the rest of creation. Namely, we are made in his image and have the spirit of God in us. 
We're, we're drastically different than dogs or cats. Way more than cats, you know what I'm saying? Um, but but those those three things are really important. God is a creator. God created everything is good. And we are made in his image. And all of these views that I'm about to mention all have all of those things in common. Thus, they are Christian views. So I want that to be said before we begin looking briefly at these views. And, and I also, I, let, let's just admit that we often get frustrated because the Bible doesn't answer all of our specific questions. Right, but, but that's okay that it doesn't, because the creation account is far more concerned with the who and why of creation than exactly the how and when. Right? It's not that God doesn't possess such knowledge, but it's also not knowledge that God in his wisdom believes that we need to have in order to know him and to trust him and to worship him. It was, it was Galileo, actually, who once famously said, the Bible is about how to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. <laughs> now, I, I do want to say you can push that too far to suggest that the Bible has nothing to say about creation. And it has a lot to say. So don't, don't take that the, to the full uh, ditch on the other side, but, but, but its point is well taken. So, so the Bible as a whole deals with the most pressing human questions of suffering and sin and salvation, right? Not, not carbon-14 dating, but with that being said, there are a number of different ways that Bible-believing Christians have understood the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So I'm going to give you those six views right here. So the first is called theistic evolution. And it's important to have both those words in there, theistic evolution. And as one pastor explained in this view, God essentially began creation and then... And then not pulled back, but there's not a, another great word to use here. He pulled back uh, from working directly in creation and, and instead it chooses to work through the natural processes that he created, namely evolution. So, so the only exception, however, in this view is that God uh, involved himself directly in the making of the human spirit in the human body as well. So, so for the most part, this view accepts the hypothesis of evolution, but, but looks at how God has uh, intervened in human history, uh, miraculously even so, and how God is the one who's the creator of matter and the overseer of the evolutionary process as everything unfolds exactly as he has ordained it to. Now, I, I am going to tell you that there's a number of challenges that this view faces. Uh, and, and we'll do this, I think, for, for every single one of these, but, but this view has, has a number of, of distinct challenges uh, because it's, it's quite difficult. Uh, the first is it kind of takes this position of inheriting all the scientific impossibilities of evolution as a theory of evolution. So, so it's really confusing. Uh, secondly, evolution teaches that one species can evolve into another species, while Genesis 1 says that each species had offspring according to its kind, not another kind as evolution postulates. And the scientific data completely agrees with Genesis on the impossibility of one species evolving into another. So people who believe in theistic evolution have to deal with that. Thirdly, the rest of scripture portrays God as continually involved in the details of creation, including making the grass grow and feeding the birds and feeding other creatures. So God doesn't completely just take a hands-off view and just let the systems that he's made go. No, no, Scripture does not paint God as remote or only indirectly involved in creation. 
This view, I think specifically, though, is for some Christians who are trying to rectify the scientific world and the theological world in their theories of retaining God's sovereignty over, over all things and his processes through this theory of creation. And there are there are actually great scholarly works uh, that, that tease out some of these things a bit better, trying to think through how they uh, explain various things that I am not, I'm not uh, the, the best explan- explanator, that's a bad word, uh, explainer of uh, of this view, but that's kind of the, the basics of it. If you want to research a little bit more, uh, there's lots of books you could read on theistic evolution, but but realize that you need to see the source of where it's coming from. So if you're going to read a book on theistic evolution uh, and, and you're curious which ones would be some good ones to think through, uh, ask our pastors. We'd love to <laughs> we'd love to point you in a good direction and tell you to not go into these other directions uh, because we want you to stay faithful to the biblical text. The next view that we want to look at is the gap theory. No, not where you bought your shirts uh, on Black Friday. Uh, no, <laughs> the gap theory. This view holds that there is a gap of billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. It holds that there was a first creation of Genesis 1-1 of the heavens and the earth, but somewhere along the line there was some cosmic rebellion, like Satan's rebellion and fall, and some cataclysmic event that left the earth largely destroyed to where it was formless and void by verse 2. So this view sees the creation account that begins Genesis 1-3 as a second creation where there are six literal days. This view is particularly helpful if you like the idea and the notion of an old earth, but you want to take the day vocabulary, that's usually evening and morning, to be exactly what they normally mean, a literal 24-hour solar day. And the great challenge to this view is that the Bible never speaks of two creations. Right? There's not a single verse that can be marshaled for support. <laughs> it has to be read into the text, not read out of the text. And so it would be hard to understand how God could make the universe and then prepare the land for his people and then say it was very good when in fact it had first been made and it was very bad and nearly obliterated. And then he somehow had to make things very good all over again. It's kind of confusing, but that's the gap view. Uh, the, the third view is the day-age view. In this view, God created the universe, including Adam and Eve, in six sequential periods of time that are geologic ages. So they're not a literal 24-hour days, but six periods of time. Now, now there are a few challenges with this view as well. Namely, the sequence of events in Genesis 1 doesn't quite square up with the scientific understandings of life as we know it, right? Like sea creatures on day five come before vegetation on day three. So I don't know what the sea creatures are eating. Uh, More to the point, though, as well, the sun, moon, and stars come millions of years after plants and trees. So I I don't know how plants and trees live without the sun. It's strange, but that is the day-age view. Fourthly is the literary framework view. Now, in this view, Genesis 1 is not intended to be a chronological sequence of events, but is part of the literary framework framework of Moses, of the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And it's a topical ordering of the events that are meant to preach to Israel about how God is superior to the Egyptian gods. 
So in this view, everything that we see in Genesis 1 is, is God saying how I am greater than the Egyptians' gods. And, and it, it's, it kind of it will prepare Israel as they're headed out of Egypt into the promised land to have uh, these reminders that God is the one that created. The Egyptians' gods did not create, but God did, and here's how he did. So it systematically takes out all of the gods of Egypt and shows how they uh, are... Um, not gods, and instead God is God, which is the exact same thing that we happen we see happen in the book of Exodus when Israel is led out of Egypt, right? All the plagues and the miracles of God, they do the exact same thing. So in this literary frame framework view, it's God is doing the exact same thing here as he is there. And so it's Moses kind of preaching to them, not giving them this word for word, jot for jot, line for line of exactly what's happening, a play by play, if you will. Thus, this framework uh, points more to the theology being taught than exactly the when and in what order. So in this view, uh, proponents point out that days 1 to 3 are different than days 4 to 6. Days 1 to 3 are forming days. Days 4 to 6 are filling days. So forming, then filling. So for example, in, in days 1 to 3, we see forming lights, sky, and water, and land. Days four to six are days of filling. So there's stars, birds and fish, animals and man. So, so day one, right, light and darkness are formed. Then in day four, they're filled with the stars. Day two, sky and waters are formed. Day five, they're filled with birds and fish. Day three, you have land. Day four, animals and man fill it, right? So, so this view has good insights into the text, and it, it does kind of sidestep the whole age of the earth question, but it does so largely by reading the text through the lens of the genre, it, it, largely through the lens of maybe poetry or maybe the, the preaching of the text. And though Genesis 1 has poetic elements, it's not really of uh, hugely all, like just, just purely poetry. So it's tough to know maybe what's merely figurative and then what's literal sort of in this view. And the fifth view that we'll examine is the young earth creationism. Now, this view holds that God made the world and Adam and Eve in six literal 24-hour days. And at face value, this is the most natural reading of most of our English translations of the Bible. Right? If science says the earth is old, it's either because God made the earth mature like he did Adam and Eve or because science is mistaken. Thus, perhaps the flood and other cataclysmic events affected our dating methodologies. They rightly recognize that science as a discipline is pre predicated upon challenging an established hypothesis based on ever-changing data. And then the sixth view that we're going to examine is the historic creationism. Now, this view points out that Genesis 1.1 uses the word beginning, which is a Hebrew word that marks the starting point for what comes afterwards. So as one pastor wrote, it is not... Uh, connote any specific length of time, nor does it necessarily mean that the next thing stated follows immediately. What God created in the first verse existed for an undefined period of time, which could be anywhere from a moment to billions of years, before God began the work of preparing the uninhabitable land for the habitation of man. The preparation of the uncultivated land and the creation of Adam and Eve occurred in the six literal 24-hour days of Genesis 2, as echoed in Exodus 20.11. And this view kind of leads open the possibility of an old earth while also maintaining six literal days of creation and a young humanity on the earth. 
And so all of this to say, in all of these six views, there has been much ink spilled in discussing these views. And people can be militant that if you disagree with their position, then you aren't a true Bible-believing Christian. But as you can tell, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Right? If we're honest, you can tell from the study, it's, it's more complicated than that. Right? In, in, and there's not a lot of grace and charity given to one another. In, in fact, I, we see this sometimes, this dogmatic holding on to what you think is right, come what may, and, and everyone else is wrong. I, I, I saw a debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye the Science Guy uh, a few years ago. I watched it. I, I remember there, there's this moment where Bill couldn't agree with Ken on this young earth viewpoint. And Ken is a sort of a militant young earth viewpoint. Like if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with the Bible and you're disagreeing with God and you're wrong. Uh, and, and so for, from my viewpoint, I'm watching these two guys talk. And from my viewpoint, it, it seems like there's this this huge thing, this, this young earth viewpoint that's really keeping Bill Nye from beginning to take the Bible seriously. He kind of intimates that at one point. I, I kind of saw this like, I just... I, I want to believe in the kind of God maybe you're talking about or something. I don't remember exactly how it went, but that was kind of the, the essence I, as I'm watching it. Just Bill sort of has this, oh man, I just, I, I just can't accept this one thing, though. And, and, I, and I wanted to scream out in that moment at Ken Ham, right? If, if I was Ken, I'd be like, in that moment, I, I would just say, like, Bill, there are other views historically that Christians hold to that aren't exactly like mine. Some Christians believe there is an old earth view that actually what you believe isn't too far away from what the Christian thought is on this. That's what, that's what I wanted him to say, but, but he didn't. It, the debate ended and no hope was offered to Bill Nye, the science guy. It seemed like Ken Ham was so focused on his dogmatic view that no other view that Christians have held throughout the last 2,000 years could be biblically faithful at all. And friends, I just want to, I just want to say, I, I think that's just uncharitable. Right? And so as long as these views hold to those things we, we talked about at the beginning, right? God is a creator over everything. He created everything as good. And then mankind was made wholly different as God's unique creation, created in his image. Then, then we can be faithful, Bible-believing Christians while disagreeing from one another, right? Those are the, that's the big E in the Christian eye chart, right? And, and the thing that should unite us as Christians, Everything else in these six different views can be argued over some, some wings at dinner tables for fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? We can make fun of you because you believe in theistic evolution. But, but really, it's just, it's just uh, you know, kind of like the, we, the way you joke with a brother right, or a sister. Right? It's, it's just fun chastising and, and just encouraging you to, to believe what we believe on various things. Right? That, that, that's what we should be doing. Not this, this dogmatic, I'm right and you're wrong, especially when looking at, at these views in particular. Now, if you come up with some bizarre other view, uh, as long as it holds those three views and you're like, man, I think I can defend this historically and I think it, it matches up with everything, I'm like, okay, man, I think that's a little weird. Uh, but but, but, but keep, keep the main thing the main thing here. Right? Let those three things be the big things. God is the creator. He created everything is good. Mankind is made in God's image. And, and let that be what unites us as Christians. And so as we wrap up this conversation, it, it's important that we must understand that the Bible doesn't give us all the details necessary to understand exactly the age of the earth. What is important to God is that we understand who created the earth and why he created it. Namely, God created it. He created it for his own glory which is ultimately shown through the gospel. 
And this, it was my hope in this episode that we were able to glean a little bit more of what God has to say to us in his word about why he created the world and the way in which he made it. In next week's episode, we're going to cover two more truths that the Bible has for us about the matter of creation, including what is perhaps most important for us, which is the relationship of man to God's creation. So we'll look forward uh, to that next week. Uh, so thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Basecamp. It was helpful. Uh, share with maybe some of your friends. Maybe this could have some good conversation uh, with your friends uh, or your family members or those in your small group or your Bible study or those that you're helping disciple or various things like that. Uh, as, as you're trying to think through biblically uh, things on creation and looking at the God who creates. Again, we want to thank the wonderful folks at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for the outline of this, as well as I took some other quotes and things from a couple of different theology textbooks. So if you're curious on what that is, you can, you can ask me, and I'll gladly let you know. If there's anything smart or helpful in this, uh, it was not from me. Uh, it was from other people. Uh, but if you were amused at all, that was probably me. Uh, so we'll leave you with that. Anyway, I hope you guys are having a great day. And uh, that as we're preparing for Friday, for Christmas Eve gathering, that, uh, that we're getting excited to gather together and worship our King Jesus. So looking forward to see you then. Have a great one.